I, I really, I was telling someone earlier, I really, I wrestled with just where to go today. It's the first message of Life Fellowship in 2024. And, you know, do you do, you, do, you do a New Year's focus and talk about goals and all those sorts of things? And, and I just couldn't shake just how critical this hour is for us as a fellowship in terms of Second Samuel. Like, just the business that I think God is desiring to do with us is so vital that we need to keep moving forward in Second Samuel. So we're going to do that. We're going to be in chapter 12. If you haven't made your way there yet, you'll want to do that now. As we do that, in March of 2016, the FBI held a press conference asking for help from the public in identifying a gunman who in 2003 robbed a credit union and killed a man in the process who tried to escape during that robbery. They had an image from 2003. It wasn't the best, but they had enhanced it, so it was, it was very improved, and they thought with the public's help, maybe they can identify this man who has eluded them for all these years. Three weeks later, a man called the FBI, claiming to be the victim of an illegal eviction. So he'd been evicted from his apartment and felt that it was a scam and the person who evicted him didn't really even own the building and that sort of thing. The FBI was floored by this because after that press conference, they had received a lead which identified this very man as their suspect. They couldn't believe it. Having invaded authorities for years, he was so confident that he could continue doing that, that he actually reached out to the FBI to arrange a meeting with them, which they gladly took. And the purpose of that meeting from their perspective was to get his DNA, which they accomplished and matched to him and Sure enough, they arrested him, and he was sentenced to life in prison. About a year fills the gap between 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is where we are this morning. And for about a year, King David has been on the run. He has. I mean, he has done this dark thing, and, but the life has just gone on. He's married Bathsheba, and life has just continued. Undoubtedly, though, he realized that confession and repentance are much easier than trying to cover your tracks for a year. He would have realized this. I know that because of what we glean from his words in Psalm 32 about this very season. Listen. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. He was exhausted. He was weak. He was weary. Uh, Trying to cover your tracks, trying to hold out and not confess, not come clean, not get honest, not get real with God, it's very, very laborious. It'll wear you down. A year of trying to tune God out 
had only weakened and wearied him. And so God did what he always does after he gives the opportunity for confession and repentance, and we do not take it. He confronted David regarding his sin. It's important to state that when God gives us time and space to come clean with our sin, He's doing it so that we do just that. It's not permission to continue. It's not permission to justify that everything is okay or it's going to be okay. God is saying, no, I am giving you time to own up to this. And if you don't, then I will confront you. We should remember that chapter 11 closes with the Lord being displeased with what David had done. And you should know this, I should know this. God will always confront us when he is displeased with what we have done. He's going to do that. He is always going to confront you when he's not pleased with your behavior. He will do that. He will absolutely do that. And in his confrontation of David, we see what he does when God confronts us regarding sin in our lives. We're going to see very clearly what that looks like, how God executes that very clearly. We start in verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So in the previous chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, David did a lot of sending. He sent and inquired after the woman. He sent messengers to take her. He sent to Joab. He sent a letter by the hand of Uriah, and he sent and fetched Bathsheba to his house. He was busy sending. Chapter 12 opens with God doing some sending. God is doing the sending now, and he sent Nathan unto David. And why did he send Nathan to him? He sent him to confront him about his sin. This is what God is doing. And it's interesting that God chose to use a parable. I have a lot of thoughts, and and I thought, man, I'm going to take too much time trying to share all the observations and questions I had about how all this went down and and who, even choosing Nathan, I thought that was an interesting choice. Not that I question it, God forbid, but, but anyway, I, I, won't, I won't bore you with all that, but, but I do want to just talk a little bit about just that God chose to use a parable. In other words, 
Nathan didn't just stroll in the king's presence and say, hey, let me tell you what you did. Right? Parables could soften a hard truth and present it in a less offensive way. That makes sense given that Nathan the prophet was getting ready to confront David with some very hard truth. And given that David was the king, had Nathan come in and not done that properly, or had David perceived him to be dishonorable or disrespectful, Nathan could have been put to death on the spot. You didn't play with the king. But at one point in Jesus's earthly ministry, the disciples asked him, why are you choosing to speak in parables? Why, 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 why are you doing that? And his answer was this, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, hear not, neither do they understand. As a nation, Israel had chose to plug their ears. They refused to see and hear and understand the clear and plain truth that Jesus put right before them, very clearly, staring them in the face. Parables were also a response to hard-hearted people who had tuned out God's Word. They were a response to that for sure. Was that not David's condition before this confrontation? Had he not plugged his ears, had he not tuned God out? Yeah, he had for at least a year. There's no relationship between David and God during this time that we can see whatsoever. He's not listening. He's got his own plan, his own agenda. He is trying to manage this situation and all of it. He's not walking with God. God in his perfect wisdom used a parable, listen, that he knew would touch David's heart as a shepherd. This will get his attention. This will resonate with him, no doubt about it. Because when a lion and a bear took a lamb out of his father's flock as a shepherd, what did David do? He slew both of them, didn't he? He slew the lion and the bear. He was a shepherd. He cared about the sheep. So God says, well, let's talk about that. So here in this parable, and him perceiving it to be true, it revived his heart at this point that was cold and dead and distant. All of a sudden now he's impassioned about justice. This is different. He hasn't been in this place for a while. For the most part, it's obvious who the players were in the parable. The rich man, obviously, David, the poor man, Uriah, the Hittite. The rich man having exceeding many flocks and herds referred to David, who had many wives and concubines at this point. The poor man having one little ewe lamb referred to Uriah, having one wife. How about that for character? Uriah was the husband of one wife. A ewe lamb is a female sheep, so Bathsheba was the ewe lamb in the parable. And based on verse 3, Uriah the Hittite was an exceptional husband. He was an exceptional husband. He purchased his wife, which was 
common during this time. But he didn't just purchase his wife, but he nourished her. He provided for her, and he was affectionate and intimate with her. This is why I have a hard time just blaming Bathsheba for what happened in chapter 11. From all, indi- from all indicators, Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba had a very good marriage. They seem to be very close based on the data that we get here. Uriah may have had children by a former wife. If you notice, verse 3 says, his children. Now, it's possible that Bathsheba and Uriah had kids. I, I don't know that for sure, but it does speak to him having children. Would you also notice that verse 3 says that the ewe lamb did eat of his own meat, Uriah's, and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. Those were the very things that David tried to do with Uriah in chapter 11. He gave him a mess of meat. He gave him wine to drink. He tried to get him to go home and lie with his wife. Except here, it was very proper before the Lord. But a question that emerges is, who is the traveler in the parable Uh, The point that is ultimately being made about that part of the parable, I think, gives us at least a clue in terms of who the traveler was. I'll do my best to share it with you, but the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, so it was utterly selfish and senseless of him to take this ewe lamb from the poor man. It was completely unnecessary. Given that David took or stole Bathsheba, the traveler would appear to be none other than the tempter. Does he not tempt you and me to take what God hasn't given us? Of course he does. Of course he does. Does he not tempt us to take what we don't even need? David did not need another woman. He had a harem of them. Completely unnecessary. But all of this reveals the first thing that God does when he confronts us about sin in our lives that we are refusing to confront. This is what he's going to do every single time. Listen, he uncovers truth. He uncovers truth. When there is a confrontation from God to you, to me, this is where he's going to start. He's going to uncover truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 31 is a very critical verse. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Here's the point. If you confront sin in your life, no one else has to. That's the point. If you deal with sin in your life, no one else has to deal with it. God had to send Nathan because, listen, David was never going to send for Nathan. So God had to send Nathan because David was not going to deal with this. In our refusal to judge ourselves, we know what the Word of God says, don't we? 
We know what it says. But what we've done is we say, you know what? Yeah, but, but, but here's why I have to excuse myself from obeying that. Here's why I'm not going to deal with that. Here's why I'm not going to judge my sin. Here's why I have to hold out. Eventually, this leads to God having to do something that when we're in this place, we really do not appreciate, do we? And that is this. God has to send a Nathan to us, doesn't he? And he does. It might be Sam. Uh, It might be me. It might be your discipler. It might be your life group leader. It might be your counselor. But whenever you dig your heels in and say, God, I know what your word says, but I refuse to look into the mirror of that and deal with that, I won't confess it. I'm not repenting. God's going to send a Nathan to you. And he or she is going to hold that mirror up into your face and show you the truth. God's going to use them to uncover truth that you've been trying to ignore. And if necessary, God will do this himself if he has to. We see this with Adam, right? Genesis 3, verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? God confronted Adam about his sin. Confronted him directly. And where was Adam at this point? He was what? He was hiding, running, not wanting to deal with this. So God had to confront Adam about his sin. Adam, listen, was not seeking God to deal with it. But God says, we're going to deal with it. Can you hear this? Can I hear this? God will always lead us to face truth that we are trying to ignore. God says you have a date with truth. You can run as hard as you can try. <laughs> you can try to evade this. You can try to you know, discard this, disregard this. But I am telling you, there is a date coming with truth. It's coming. Even if that means while you're lying on your back in a hospital bed or immersed in some bitter, hard situation where God says, the date is here. We're going to deal with the truth that you've been running from all this time. I've got you. You can't go anywhere. I'm going to put the mirror in your face, and we're going to deal with the truth. And we should know that when God uncovers truth, it is always truth that is clear and unquestionable. And the truth that God was communicating through Nathan to King David was this. King David's actions were wicked, selfish, and merciless. This was the truth that God was communicating through the prophet Nathan to David. What you did was wicked, 
It was selfish. You showed no mercy. That truth would have been like an atomic bomb to whatever justification gymnastics that David was spinning or trying to spin about what he had done. God would have obliterated all that. Although David hasn't connected the dots yet, God was preparing him to see his sin the same way that God saw it. David would come to realize once God says, it's you, that, oh, wow, that was wicked, that was selfish, that was merciless. This moves me to just remind you or put you in remembrance of something that many of us have heard from believers who have passed this down, and it's a precious principle. It goes like this, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. The essence of this is whenever the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you have grieved God, that you have stepped beyond the bounds of His Word, that you thought, said, or have done something that was grievous to the Lord, the best time to deal with it is now, not a year later. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Keep short accounts with God. Once the Holy Spirit lets you know that He's grieved, stop. (laughs) Confess. Agree with God. Father, I know this is not pleasing to You. But in quenching the Spirit, all we do is give place to the devil, which ultimately, listen, sets the stage for God to have to confront us. And you don't want that. I don't want that. Verse 5, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, Boy, would you hear this? As the Lord liveth. The man that had done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Up to this point, David has been nothing but calculated and in control, at least outwardly. I mean, he looked unflappable. He's got everything under control. But as God knew, this would certainly stir David, and it did. David was incensed. This is not a parable. This is true. Who is this man? He deserves to die. The issue was, his reaction was excessive. Because if you look at Exodus 22 and verse 1, uh, if someone stole a sheep, they had to restore four sheep for the one. It said nothing about anybody being put to death. None whatsoever. Here, David found this act to be so despicable and deplorable 
that not only does this man have to restore fourfold, but he's got to die. It's that bad. We're going to come back to his indignation about this fourfold restoration because it's going to show up in his reaping in a very personal way. But brethren, it is frightening. It is frightening when the believer is not walking with God according to his word, especially leaders, especially husbands, especially fathers, especially pastors. It's terrifying. Remember in chapter 11, it was King David who told Joab not to be displeased about the murder of Uriah. Well, here's the problem. God's Word had a problem with it. (laughs) That was a violation of God's Word. No, David, you don't get to override God's Word. I don't care who you are. I don't care who people think you are. You don't get to override the Word of God. And here in verse 5, David is going beyond the lines of God's word. A fourfold restoration is not enough. He's got to die. Why? Because I said so. Oh, we got to be careful. But here was the piercing truth (laughs) he had done far worse. And he was the one who actually deserved to die based on what he had done. When God confronts us, he uncovers truth. But here's what he also does. He unmasks us. He unmasks us. The mask comes off. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So uh, during this time, hypocrites were actors who performed in plays and they wore masks. That was a hypocrite. So Jesus' point was, the scribes and the Pharisees, all they were doing was just performing religiously. (laughs) It was disingenuous. It was fake and phony as a $2 bill. They were fraud spiritually. They were just performing, just acting religiously. For about a year, this is exactly what King David has been doing. He's been acting. He's been performing. He's been putting on a show. A really good one, outwardly. I mean, if they were giving out, what is it, an an Emmy? An Emmy Award, right? That's the award you get for like a really good, you're nodding in agreement. Am am I right? Emmy Awards, right? For great performances, right? Okay. If Emmys were a thing, David would have got it. You're laughing. You're laughing because you're saying, how could I not know that? It's, there's something snarky, some sarcastic. Tell me why you're laughing. No, I want to hear it, please. I know this guy. 
No, come on. Give it up. You just Oscar? Oscar, that's what. See, just help me out, bro. I'm 51, man. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. Okay. Well, wow. <laughs> Is it fair to say, based on what we've heard so far, that, that, that David would have won all three? <laughs> Is, that, Is that okay? He'd have won all three? All right, very good. Thank you. You guys got to help me out. <laughs> I'm a little slow. I didn't study that part. <laughs> wow. Well, he was the sweet psalmist. So, I mean, <laughs> this just keeps getting better. He was definitely acting uh, real well. And listen, his act, it went next level in his response to the rich man in the parable. I mean, he turned it up a notch. I mean, he was angry, incensed against this man. And listen, he even had the audacity to, in verse 5, invoke God's name. The Lord liveth. If you turn back to chapter 11, you don't see him using the Lord's name, do you? As a matter of fact, I couldn't help but wonder, I wonder when was the last time he even spoke God's name? Forget about the restoration this man has to die. He <laughs> accused a rich man of having no pity. How much pity did he show Uriah? Wow. Brothers and sisters, these two verses, this is one of the clearest pictures of hypocrisy that you will ever see in the Word of God. David's response. But there was something else that Jesus said about the hypocrite in Matthew 7, verse 5. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Was this not King David here in this chapter? There he was with a beam in his eye. Covetousness, lust, adultery, murder, lying, stealing. But calling for the death of a man with a moat in his eye, the taking of a sheep. Hypocrisy is bold, man. Wow. Through Nathan the prophet, God was unmasking the king. We need to hear this. When God confronts us, he seeks to reveal the truth about our character and the state of our walk. This is what God is doing when he confronts us. This is where the Lord lets us know that we are not who we think we are and who others think we are, nor are we where we think we are and others think that we are. 
So God says, in this confrontation, I'm, I'm going to bring you face to face with the truth. I'm going to unmask you, and I'm going to show you who you really are and where you really are. You need to know that. Having been there a time or two in my own life, I can attest that those moments can be bone-crushing. When God shows me the truth about, where I, about who I really am and where I really am versus who I thought I was or where I thought I was, God says, I only deal in truth, son. And here's the truth about who you really are and where you really are right now. Remember what David said? My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Bone crushing. In that moment, I promise you, in that season of, of, of groaning and struggling internally, he was coming to grips with, I did that. I did that. I had one of my mighty men put to death. Other men had to die to cover my sin. I stole another man's wife. I did that. This is why I always say, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is to be honest and real about what you're capable of. Don't kid yourself. Let me inform you when this kind of confrontation just might be in your forecast. Here it is. A confrontation with God of this nature is inevitable when we are disgusted by the sin of others while being dismissive of our own. When you're there, this kind of confrontation is certainly in your forecast. And you are just absolutely repulsed. Why, did you see what they did? Did you, did you hear about that? That's, that's just awful. I, I can't believe that, or I, I could never do that. They ought to they ought to be put to death. They ought to get the death sentence. They ought to be locked up for life. If we're honest, we've all had times when we've been incensed at what someone else has done. But man, when it comes to our own stuff, it just doesn't smell as bad, does it? It's just not as bad. Yeah, I get it. It's not, but it's not that over there. We just excuse ourselves so freely. We do this in marriage too, don't we? There are times you can look at your spouse and you are just disgusted with them, aren't you? They're just a worm. Look at how awful they are. Oh, he disgusts me. She 
disgusts me. While giving ourselves a pass. Oh, man. This is like the man that we open the message with, right? He was disgusted by the fact that he had been the victim of an illegal conviction or eviction. How dare they treat me this way? How dare they evict me? And for 13 years, had been on the run for murder. But how dare they evict me? David's anger was greatly kindled against what someone else had done, not at what he had done. Brethren, if God has confronted you today, He is not giving you permission to respond tomorrow. It's today. As I close, I want to just give you some questions to reflect on. These will be on the screen. What is the Lord calling you to judge? To deal with, that is, in your life so that no one else has to. What does it look like to start dealing with that today? Can I just share with you? We put or we place a great strain on the people in our lives, the people who are closest to us, we place a great strain on those people when we refuse to deal with sin in our lives. We put them in, at times, impossible situations. Can you imagine the trepidation, the angst that Nathan had to deal with knowing that God was sending him to confront the king? Imagine that. You're Nathan the prophet. and I mean, it's one thing in chapter 7 when we met him and they're working through, is David going to build God a house or not? And then God reveals the Davidic covenant. Well, that's... <laughs> Nathan's like, man, this is awesome. All right, Nathan, here's your next assignment. You're going to go and you're going to confront the king knowing that if this doesn't go well, you could be beheaded. Can I tell you, this is one of the ways that we all cause great damage to our marriages. <laughs> Simply put, when we refuse to judge or deal with our sin, you know what we do? We frustrate our marriage. We frustrate our marriage. And why is that so? Because, listen, at the moment at which you and I quench the Spirit, all progress stops. All forward momentum ceases. Thus, And once you get stuck, listen, guess what that means? That means now your spouse can only go so far. Doesn't matter how far they want to go. As long as you have dug your heels in, as long as you have said, this is as far as I'm going to go, how far can they really go? 
Not very far. And guess what's going to happen? Every time they try and move forward, your disobedience is going to pull them back like a rubber band. You can stretch it, and it just comes back. They're saying, hey, man, I'm hearing from the Lord, and God is leading me to do this, and God is calling me to do that, and, and, and let's go. And you're like, I don't think so. Go give it your best. I, I tremble. I tremble at God revealing, and God has, over the years, God has revealed things to me about His will for my life, and God gives me vision about where He's leading me and all of that. And I thank God for that. I really do. But I tremble at God revealing to me, as great as that is, son, you will not be able to accomplish that because of her. She's stuck. <laughs> Praise the Lord, that's not my story. <laughs> I will be crushed. When you stop, you inject frustration into your marriage. Two, in what ways did the Lord deal with you regarding ignoring a beam in your eye while focusing on the moat in someone else's eye? I don't care who you are, all of us can play the role of a hypocrite, can't we? I have my moments, if I'm honest, where I can lock in on, hypothetically speaking, something that I see in Mark, and, and it could be a little thing. God says, are you kidding me? Whenever you refuse to deal with sin in your life, you will always divert your attention to the shortcomings of others, which keeps you from moving forward. So you know what God's calling all of us to do? It's to look in the mirror today. And as we've done that, we've heard from him. And God says, let's respond. Let's respond in brokenness, contrition, and obedience. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Would you help us, Lord, to really think on these questions and respond in a way that is pleasing in your eyes? In Jesus' name, amen.